Would you pray with me? Father, please anoint Heather. Give her words to share with us and give us hearts and minds that are open to hear that we might be changed more into the image of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. So, first I have to say something that has nothing to do with my sermon. Trey mentioned the mite boxes and how it's a way of building into our kids. And I just have to share with you really quickly. Um, You know, I've actually found it's a way that my kids build into me, too. Because I have the the world's most generous kids. They take after Chris, and they are naturally very generous people. I am not a naturally very generous person, and it has been really fun to watch them do extra little jobs around the house to make money to put in the mite box, to pray for the people um, that that money will be going to, and also, I don't know, I just needed to share with you that, that it goes both ways, that teaching our children sometimes means teaching us, too. Anyway, like I said, that has nothing to do with my sermon. <laughs> Second sermon. Paganini was the sort of ideal virtuoso, the quintessential virtuoso. He played violin a couple hundred years ago and is sort of, he created that idea of the crazy musician with just this amazing skills. And he was giving a concert and as he's playing this very technical, difficult piece, a string on his violin broke and he kept playing. And another string broke, and he kept playing until all of his strings but one broke. And yet he finished this amazing performance and wowed the entire audience by keeping and pressing on when things seemed completely out of control. I don't know about you guys, but my life often feels completely out of my control. As Jason told you, I'm raising three children. Sometimes it feels like four. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And life feels completely out of control. I am not in control of when I get to wake up in the mornings. I am not in control of how many times I get woken up at night. I am not in control of, of how my day goes most often. And it goes beyond that. We are not in control of things beyond our day. We are not in control of the stock market. We are not in control of politics. We have the chance to vote, but we are not in control overall of what will happen. We are not in control often of the corporations that hire us and sometimes unexpectedly fire us. We are not in control often of physical things that happen to us, good things and bad things. The unexpected happens. What do we do? How do we handle it? How do we continue to live faithfully? How do we continue to respond in a godlike way when we just feel like going crazy? And really, it doesn't take much for me. If I can't find my keys in the morning, I'm going around going, can I please just get a break, God? Why can't I even find my keys? It really doesn't take much for me to feel way out of control. Today, I want to look at a passage of what happens, how Jesus responds 
when things seem to the world to be out of control. So look with me at Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, okay, we're just going to stop right there for just a brief second, um, because I want to give you, Luke is tying this to something that is going on, so I want to give you two brief things to understand. One is, in chapter 9, Jesus very intentionally turned toward Jerusalem. He is very deliberately heading toward Jerusalem, the political and religious epicenter for Israel. And he is known. He has made it known. He has had conversations about this. He knows that that means suffering. He knows that that is not going to um, end in happiness and what we think of happiness. It's going to be hard. He understands that. He knows that. And he's pressing on toward that. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing, if you look at the little section right above it, in my Bible, it's narrow. It's called the narrow door. Jesus has just given some very hard teaching, some very unexpected teaching about who is going to be participating in the kingdom of God. And it is not who everybody else thinks is going to be participating in the kingdom of God. It's very different than what the Pharisees and the religious people have been teaching up to this time. And so the question now is going to be, how are the people of Israel going to respond to that? How are the political leaders going to respond to this kind of teaching? How are the Pharisees going to respond to this kind of teaching? When Jesus says, it is about whether you follow me or not, whether you live the life I'm calling to you or not, how are they going to respond? And that is where we are now. At that very hour... Some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Herod is the political leader of the Jews at the time. He's the stand-in leader for under Rome, and he's ruling the Jews. And so they're coming to him and saying, he wants to kill you. He is, um, he's an insecure, unpredictable leader. I think we've all probably had bosses like this who wreaks havoc. At this point, Luke has told us that he has already beheaded John the Baptist, although it was for personal reasons more than political reasons, it seems like. So he's, he's beheaded the forerunner to Christ. This is not boding well for Christ. But he's also mentioned that he's curious about Christ. He sees, he sees him kind of as a circus trick. And he wants to see Jesus perform some of these cool miracles everybody's talking about. So we do know that Herod knows about Jesus. He's on his radar. He's interested in him. And Pharisees are coming to him and saying, you need to get away from here. If you keep going to Jerusalem the way you are going, you're going to get killed. Herod is going to kill you. Now, why would the Pharisees do this? Because up until this point, they have not exactly been on Jesus' side. They have been very antagonistic toward Jesus' side. There are two views. One is there are some Pharisees who do want to help Jesus, that they see him and they say, we, we don't want you to get killed. You're a fellow Jew. We don't want you hurt. Or at the very least, we don't want you to go into Jerusalem and cause trouble for some of the, our people. There's another view that they have kind of an ulterior motive. Jesus is garnering masses, he's, gain, he's gaining some popularity, and they don't like it. He's speaking out against them, and they don't like it. So let's go in, tell him Herod is after him, tell him to go, he'll run away. He'll go back to Galilee, where he can't do too much damage. He'll get some popularity down there, but it'll fizzle out. And so there's sort of an ulterior motive. 
Either way, whichever view you have, and Luke doesn't tell us what their motivation is right here, but whichever way you go, it is clear that they do not have God's vision. That they are responding to Herod, to the political structures, to the way the world works, the way that they see things. They are not listening to Jesus' words, if I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to go through the suffering. They are not identifying with his teachings that he has just said of who's going to participate. They do not have God's vision. In fact, this is how Jesus evaluates the situation and what they say. First, this is how he describes uh, Herod. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. When we think of a fox, we kind of think of this cunning little creature who can get away from things and and he's kind of cute. At the time, that was not how people thought of foxes. They thought of foxes who, yes, did a, he, a lot of damage. Very dangerous, but ultimately powerless. They weren't the big creatures. They weren't the big ones to be scared of. You could kind of easily get them and get them, put them out of their misery. These foxes were ultimately impotent. That is what Jesus is saying is about, about Herod. Yes, he seems dangerous. Yes, he is wreaking havoc. But that guy is not who's in charge. The one that you are responding to, the one that you are afraid of, the one that you are frustrated with, he is not in charge. He is not the powerful one. What else does he say about the Pharisees? Well, he says in uh, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You Pharisees think that you are doing what is best for God's people. You see, when the Pharisees are trying to chase Jesus away, I don't think that they were sitting there all the time thinking about how do we best make get rid of God's person? How do we go against God here? They didn't think of themselves as evil. They didn't think of themselves as the bad guy. They probably didn't even think of themselves as the ones who really wanted to be in power. They thought of, them, of themselves as the ones who were able to best take care of Israel. We know what's best for Israel. We know how to live faithful lives. We know how to appease God so that he will eventually make Israel powerful again. We know what we're doing, Jesus. Stay out of this. You're just, you're causing problems. But Jesus says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Israel has this habit of when God sends a prophet and says, this is who you need, this, you need to listen to this guy they say what you are saying is against God and they execute him. This is their history. And Jesus says, you're doing it now. You think you are living a faithful life. You think you have things under control. But that's not what's going on here. And then he says in verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. This is a phrase that he is borrowing from Jeremiah. A prophet 
during the time when Israel was being sent off into captivity for their sin. And what he is saying to them now is, yeah, you remember how Israel was back then? And now you say, yes, we were so sinful. We really messed up. We went into captivity. We don't want that to happen again. And Jesus is saying, you're doing it again. You idiots. They were sent. They, their house was forsaken. Because of their sin, God had left and sent them into captivity Send him into timeout. And he says, you guys are just as stubborn. You're just as hard-hearted. You are just as sinful. Have you learned nothing? You think that the faithful lives that you are living are what is pleasing God. But it is not faithful living. You have your own ideas and your own agendas for what you think you should do, what you think Israel should do, and what you think God should do. But that is not what is going on. And I was thinking about this in regards to my own life. And it's hard to identify with the Pharisees because every week we sit here and tell you how they're the bad guys. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes I wonder, if I lived back then, who would I be identifying more with? Would I be looking at the Pharisees and going, they, they know the word, they seem to be following the rules, they're living these faithful lives. They have an agenda, they're taking care of us, they're keeping Rome kind of out from our back doors. They've got things under control. And I wonder how I do that now and how I sort of keep going with my ideas and my agenda for my life, what I think is best for me, what I think is best for my family, what I think is best for this world, how I keep living my assumptions of God's faithfulness. And one of the ways I was thinking about this is, what do I consider blessed? When I say, God, please bless me, what do I mean by that? And I often mean things like good health, good job, smart, talented, funny, whatever kids, athletic kids. I often mean a good 401k or some sort of retirement plan. For Chris and I, we mean, you know, maybe a year sailing around the world with our kids. We have our own ideas for what is best for us. What is the, the godly life, the good life, the life that we should be living? And the question is, what happens when that doesn't happen? When one of those things don't happen, how do I respond to that? Do I say, okay, God, you're, you're in control. I trust you. More likely, I say, I either blame God. What are you doing? Can I get one single break? Or what did I do wrong that you're punishing me? Because life is now out of control. Something unexpected has happened. My agenda, my ideas are not happening the way I thought they would happen. And so God must be either punishing me or he's just being plain mean. 
He's not doing things my way. How do we respond when the unexpected happens? Here's how Jesus responded to the way the world works, to the way that the power structures of the time, the things that seem to be in control. Let's go back to verse 32. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Um, that phrase, today and tomorrow and the third day, is not a literal three days thing. It's, um, it's an idiom that he's saying, in a short time, I'm going to do this for a little bit, and then I finish my course. So you guys think Herod's in charge, but the timetable is divinely appointed. And this, the phrase, finish my course, that is a phrase used throughout Luke and the gospel specifically for God's messianic work, specifically for what God is doing through Christ. In fact, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, it is the same Greek word right here. I have to finish my work. He has a divinely appointed mission, and Herod can do nothing against it. The Pharisees can do nothing against it. What God has appointed, they can't touch. It involves sacrifice. It's not what the Pharisees expected. It's not falling into their agenda. It seems like other forces are in control, but it's divinely appointed. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must go. Again, another phrase that is used in the Gospels with this is God's work. I am doing God's work. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, that same phrase from before, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I know I am going to perish, but this is God's work. He is in control. That story I told you about Paganini in the very beginning, what the audiences didn't know at the time is he broke his strings on purpose because he knew the audience would go, oh, wow, that's amazing. The guy was in control of what seemed like something out of control the whole time. We are not breaking our strings on purpose. We are not the ones in control, thankfully, but our God is. We have a God who is control of all of these unexpected things that happen, job losses, physical ailments, Stock market crashes, losing our 401k, something happening in our lives that is not according to our agenda, not getting the promotion that we thought we would get that would lead us to the career we thought would happen. All of these things, God is in control of them. And Jesus is able to respond with certainty because he knows his mission. He knows God's plan, and he knows that if he just walks faithfully with God's plan, it doesn't matter what Herod and the Pharisees and all the other powers they at can do to him. Is that the way that I am responding? Do I look at things and say, this just totally ruined my plan for my life, but maybe this is how God is working? Because the truth is, God does have a divinely appointed purpose for each and every one of us. 
And it is not, okay, step on a soapbox for just a minute. It is not something he hid. We don't have to go find God's will as if this is a hide-and-seek game. It's not complicated. It's right here. Our purpose is right here. Genesis 1, when he created man, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. You have dominion over it. In other words, you are the rulers of the earth. Take care of it. Here are the keys, kids. Take it out for a spin. Ha ha, because the earth spins. (laughs) And take care of it. A divinely appointed mission. In Micah 6.8, he says he has shown you what is good to act justly and to love mercy, mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Does anybody remember that song, Am I the Only One? What did you? I looked at you because I knew you would, Christy. <laughs> Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the world. Jesus sums it up this way in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is our divinely appointed mission, and the truth is it has nothing to do with having a certain job or being at a certain place in our lives or having a certain house or living in a certain neighborhood. All of those things can change. They can change every single day. They can be way out of our plans. They can be way out of our control. And we still have these divinely appointed missions. And we can still say, how am I doing this today, right now in my life? How am I loving the Lord, my God, even though this just happened over here? How am I doing these things? Because, yes, life feels out of control. We feel like sometimes we don't have choices. We, we can't make a decision my boss is really the one who's ruling my life. This, my kid's school is ruling my life. All of these things feel like they're ruling our lives. So it feels like this. God is in control. He has given us a divinely appointed mission. And we are not powerless. We still get to make decisions for how we live our lives. We can still say, I am going to live my life like this. I am going to make these decisions for how we are going to glorify God, even if all the circumstances don't line up according to how I want them. There is a, um, a man in India. So in India, this has been true for a long time, girls are not valued. And and what, is, what has happened is they are basically, families are aborting them often. And there, there's a doctor who said, you know, there are the two hardest things to tell a family. One is a family member died. The other is you're having a girl. If they were having a boy, there would be these huge celebrations of life and excitement they're having a boy. If they were having a girl, these women were leaving crying in tears. The families wouldn't even stay for the birth. It was just this huge disappointment. And he saw something, this big, huge, systemic thing that seems way out of his control. 
I cannot change the way India feels about this. But I can celebrate the life, lives of these girls in my care. And so what he decided to do was first, if they were having a girl, he would deliver the baby for free. So right there, he just lost half of his income. And his wife, in fact, commented in the article, she's like, I didn't know how we were financially going to make it. There was a sacrifice there for him. But he said, I want to do something to show that I value this and I think it's important and I, and I want to help the families. And then second, he and his staff threw a party every time a girl was born. The families were throwing parties when the boys were born, but nobody was throwing parties for these girls. Cake and everything, they were throwing these parties. He may have looked at the system and said, I'm powerless, I can't do anything about it. But he knew he could do something for these girls, for these people that were in his life, and that's what we can do. We may not be able to change big things. We may not be able to change corporations. Sometimes I look out in the world and I just think, oh my goodness, there's so much concrete and we cannot change this. It's so ugly. <laughs> but we can do little things in our lives. We can follow God. We can continue on the path of his divinely appointed mission. No matter where we are, no matter what is going on, no matter what's happening in our jobs, in our family lives, we can follow God. There's one last thing I want to show you. Because if you'll notice, this passage is called the Lament over Jerusalem. And it's really a very beautiful passage. And traditionally, if you ever go to Israel or have been to Israel, there's a spot that they kind of have as this is the traditional spot where Jesus made this lament, where he wept over Jerusalem and really over all of Israel. And it's the spot where you have, you're kind of up on one little hill and then there's a little valley and you see the temple. So if you, if you see those pictures, modern day, kind of the temple, old temple walls and the dome, the golden dome, you're kind of looking at it from the traditional spot of where Jesus was. So he's looking out and he sees the temple. He sees and he's envisioning what is God's vision for these people? What should it be? It should be that they recognize who he is. It should be that they follow him. It should be that they're actually drawing others to God. But they're so caught up in their own agendas they can't do it. And Jesus responds by crying and weeping over them because he's a man of love and compassion. He's a God of love and compassion. His divinely appointed mission is from love. And it says, verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. He longs 
to comfort his people, to draw them in. When the world is going askew, when things are crazy, when our plans are screwed up, when our lives are screwed up, he wants to comfort us like a mother comforts her child. When you see the, your own kids, imagine seeing your own kids just hurt, upset, and sometimes in their hurt, they lash out and they're angry and they don't want you. Just go away. And you just want to comfort them and make them feel better and let them know it's going to be okay. And that's what Jesus wants. When we decide to put aside our own ideals, to put aside our own agendas, and to follow God's appointed way. It is going to mean sacrifice. It is going to sometimes mean pain. People are not going to understand. We probably sometimes won't understand when we pass up that job promotion because, quite honestly, we're not going to be able to disciple our kids if we're taking that job over this job. When we decide to live here instead of there, even though it's a lot harder to live here for, some, for whatever reason, we will make decisions that will bring sacrifice. But we have a God who will comfort us and love us. We have a God who will take us in his arms and say, I will bring you through this. Because my divinely appointed mission does mean sacrifice, but it doesn't end with sacrifice. It ends with hope. Jesus says in 35, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's hurt because they are not recognizing him now. They're rejecting him, and so God is forsaking them, but that's not the end. Someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we'll, everyone will recognize our God who's in control. And all of these things that feel meaningless and they feel hurtful and they feel sad and they feel out of our control will all be wrapped up in our good. Because God's vision for our lives is not to have the good house or the good job or the kids who go to Harvard. Not that these things are bad, but his ultimate vision for our lives is our holiness and our participation in his kingdom. And we will see that through and he will see that through and finish that performance in our lives and we just lay down our own agendas and follow him. And you pray with me. God, please reveal to us those things that we cling to, the hopes and dreams and visions for our lives that are not of you, but that get in the way of your vision for our life. Amen.